This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. This is the Ellis Martin Report. But today, Ellis takes us into the future with Yost DeVries, CEO of the DeLorean Motor Company. I set him into the future. Yost, welcome to the program. Great to have you here with us in Vegas at the Web3 Expo Live. Nice to be here, thank you. Now we're sitting in a DeLorean lounge, if you will, in the middle of the Wynn Hotel, and it's a rare treat for me to meet a visionary such as yourself, especially in the automotive space, which I'm a car collector and uh, very interested in battery metals and electric vehicles, and I'm obsessed with time travel. Good, then you're <laughs> in the right place. <laughs> so my first question to you, will there be a time machine in the Alpha 5 coming out in 2024? Uh, no, hell no. <laughs> I think that is probably the most clear answer I can give. It is The time machine was awesome for the brand, uh, but we're moving beyond that at the moment. Okay, that, that's a fair answer. I'm only slightly disappointed because the Alpha 5, which is coming out again in 2024, looks like a, a gorgeous gorgeous car. It's just a, a beautiful car. It was designed by an Italian, is that correct? Yeah, we went to the original designer of the DMC-12 from the 1980s, Giugiaro, and him and his son have designed the original DMC-12. The company he had at that time moved over to different ownership, so we went to the ITEL design, which is the big design house under which he worked before. And that design house actually also did the Alpha 5 for us, and the Alpha 4, 3 and 2 because they had to make a whole family of cars to bridge 40 years. Now, the original DeLorean, and, and the model number escapes my, my brain for some reason right now, there were some mechanical issues all across the board. It was not a perfect car. No, uh, the DMC-12, that was the original model, was designed as an amazing prototype by John DeLorean and his team that he took together with him from General Motors, and then they couldn't build it. So they went to Lotus, Lotus Engineering in the UK, and Colin Chapman actually took that design that the world loved, went to everybody's parts bin, Volvo, Renault, you name it, and took parts from everybody else to, to get to a car that actually was able to produce. And that's the ultimate design there. The car was not as fast as it looked, but it was super iconic. Over the years, the car has had very good stewardship with the owner of the brand, the, the Wynn family, and they've upgraded the cars continuously over the last 40 years. So today, you can buy a pretty good DeLorean DMC-12. 40 years ago, it was a bit of a hit and miss. What made you decide to reinvigorate this brand and design the cars that you've designed and step heavily into the EV space? I think the technology caught up to the brand. The, the, the barriers of entry today for EVs is a lot lower than, for instance, when I was at uh, another car company 15 years ago, when we were the first first one at the market for an electric car. The brand has never left the market. So the brand is really strong, but it didn't live in a physical car. It lived in game, t-shirts, Lego, Playmobil. And in our hearts. In our hearts, absolutely. So a brand as vibrant as this deserved to come back. But we needed to get the technology to actually catch up to the brand. If Tesla hadn't come along and again started with a Lotus years ago, would you, would you be in the same space now, do you think? I think so. I think Tesla was the company that broke through the the barriers of what was possible and what wasn't possible. I think today, if you look at the geopolitical situation, electric cars and the environmental situation, electric cars was going to happen. The speed at which it happened, I think Tesla accelerated greatly. 
And now is the next step beyond battery electric, which is hydrogen. That's the next big race. So you have a hydrogen vehicle, as I understand it, it's an SUV that's coming out uh, in a few years as well. Is we're, for Europe, we're probably going to go the hydrogen route because in the US we're still living in the church of batteries <laughs> and our friends at CARP are very difficult to move from their position. And it's hard to store hydrogen without great leakage. That's, that's the other problem. The problem. But that Europe is now in a significant energy crisis and the road to infrastructure in Europe is a lot easier to manage with hydrogen than it is with batteries. Interesting. So what car company is this going to be in five or ten years? What is the future of DeLorean? Right now with you are... Uh, you're introducing, I think, is it 10,000 cars or? 9,351, which is one more than the original DMC-12 was intended to produce in the period that they were alive. <laughs> and I guess these cars are going to be sold at a premium. They're, they're not exactly for everybody. No. Nor yes. should they be. But beyond that, what is the future of DeLorean? We want to go a little bit lower in price range, obviously. Our first car had to be expensive simply because it is expensive to start at the company. Our next car will be an SUV. It will be a three-row SUV, full size, full electric for the U.S., probably hydrogen for uh, for Europe. It will still be a luxury vehicle. There, There's no immediate possibility or desire for us to and bring this. What luxury are we talking about? I think Cadillac Escalade, BMW X7, okay. full-size, near that $100,000 range. So production volumes will not be incredibly big. First, the brand needs to establish itself into the market before it can go lower in price. And we need to learn. I mean, we're a young company, yeah. a startup company. You don't go running 200 miles an hour on day one. You have to learn your organization and upgrade your organization to be able to get to bigger volumes. Is this car going to be able to handle, I mean, will it be a, a real driver's car? Yes. That is that is the one thing that we really set out. Our, our core values is design, connectivity, and our main driver is how do we get the motion back to electric vehicles. If you, if you look to do it to current production of electric vehicles, a lot of the emotion is gone. You're driving an iPad on wheels. You hit the button and you go from A to B automatically. We want to be the opposite of that. We have big off buttons for that. We want to be the driver's car, but then an EV space. I drive a Tesla Model S Plaid, which I bought last year. Love the car. However, stating that, I judged Teslas for a long time being kind of pedestrian looking like a, a spruced up uh, Ford Taurus. They, I didn't believe it was a unique design. And now everybody has them. Even it, the interiors of the car, while they're minimalistic and they haven't been proven with regard to durability, I don't feel like I'm driving a driver's car. Franz, Franz from Holzhauser, the designer of the Model S, would not be happy with your comment on the design. <laughs> because I think in 2012, when the car was first yeah. delivered, it was absolutely spectacular. And, and, and the market success has proven that. And I do agree with you on the inside. The inside is a design choice of minimalistic design. Their shareholders have forced them to abandon all leather, so it's a vegan interior. It's becoming clinical. I miss the emotion. When I get into that car, I love the power, don't get me wrong. I think the right and handling is pretty darn good. It is. But I don't feel I'm in a luxury car. And you should for that kind of money. And I think you should for that kind of money. I agree with you. So what we said is that the zero to 60 for us, it needs to be fast enough. But it's not a design objective. What will be a design objective is to get that luxury feeling back in the car. The surfaces need to be sculpted. There needs to be design in it. There needs to real materials in it. So it, it, it's a choice. It is Tesla went for volume. Tesla went for accelerating the world's transition to electric vehicles into a better environmental solution. So lower and lower in price point. We said we want to stay exclusive in this vehicle. So 
There are certain things in this car that you will expect to see. Will it be a, a volume like a Model S? Never. It's never intended to be. What can we see from a futurist standpoint of view? What are you putting into the car potentially that just doesn't exist now? Looking ahead 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we're still new in the EV space. Emotion. And I'll, I'll give you a good example. Yes, please. We're developing a human connection to the vehicle. So if you want to see the heartbeat of your kids in your dashboard, you will. If your wife wants to blow you a kiss while you're driving, there's a little air scarf in your seat and she can. If your son or daughter wants to give you a hug, the bolsters in the seat will be able to do that. When your phone is integrated with the vehicle and you drive and you pass somebody in your contact list, the, the, the car will tell you, hey, you haven't spoken to Mary in three months. Do you want to call her? you want to visit her? The other thing, there's two little light bulbs on the dashboard, on the top, little, little light strips on the dashboard, and we call it a true north. So your true north for the vehicle for your life might be your birthplace, where your mom is buried, your house. It's an important thing in your life where you always want to know that's my true north. So wherever you are with the car, whenever you hit that true north, those little light bars light up to, to give you an emotion of, hey, there's bigger things out there than just you driving this car. And it is those little things, the emotional connection that we get back in the car, despite you're missing the audible experience of a screaming V8, V8 or V12. I don't miss it at all. Okay, well... <laughs> Some people do. Uh, I've gotten rid of all this. But, but yeah, the, the emotional part. That is, I think we're really investing very heavily on how we can connect the vehicle back to you. The drive from A to B is your time. Was this your vision? Because actually, I never could have come up with this on my own. I like consider myself a creative soul, but, but what you're saying is, is emotional to hear it, and it's music. And music is another whole area where we're going into. It is that company that is exhibited there called Cambridge Audio. They're way up there. They are working with us now to define what glass do we use, what materials do we use. Atmos Dolby will be in the vehicle. That's we're not the first, but we're definitely the second. That there is an aura around music, touch, smell, feel that elicits emotional connections between you and the car in the time that you're spending in it. That's just invaluable. So. We're not against autonomous, but we have a very big off button. We want you to drive. We want you to feel that emotion, and we're investing in it. Is this car strictly for driving? Because one of the things I like about my, my Tesla Model S is that I can use it as an office. Right. Is, is that part of the... Uh, no, the yeah, opposite. Tell me why. It's a choice. Autonomous 2.0 will be in there, so you'll, you'll, you'll have the ability to touch the wheel and the car will do whatever it needs to do. But, but we want you to use this car as your time to decompress. A to B is not a waste of time. A to B is your time. So we want to make A to B as emotionally connected as we can. You really couldn't do this with, with any other brand, could you? No. This is, this is futuristic, the way we launched the car as an NFT. Nobody's done it. Explain that. DeLorean lived the last 20 years as an online game on, on Nintendo, Microsoft, Sony. You really? Meant, yeah, absolutely. Okay. The brand never left the mark. So how do we get from a physical car in the 80s to a digital car Web 2 in the 2000s and 2010s to a physical car and metaverse or Web 3 in the 2020s? NFT was the perfect answer. So there's going to be some sort of metaverse and this universe interaction between the physical car you have, and I'm sure if you want to sit home and put on the goggles, you can have a, a whole different experience with the, with the car. Well, it, right. it's, it's, it's a bigger vision than that. Okay. Right now, we're selling a piece of our factory in the future. 
So you're reserving a production. Is that the $2,500? That is the $2,500 that you're buying today. You're buying a little piece of the factory in the future. Okay. Six months before we build your car, we will go to you and say, hey, what color do you want? What options do you want? What wheels? Whatever. When do you want to take delivery of the car? And you'll burn your existing NFT. We'll give you a new one with the right VIN number of the vehicle with an avatar that's exactly the car you spec. When you take delivery of the vehicle, at that moment, we call it your digital twin. We'll start absorbing all the service history, all the usage information of that car. How fast you drive, how slow you drive, what you've done with the vehicle. So when you sell your car in the future, you will also sell your digital twin. If your car is taken off the road and we know about it, we will actually go back and retire that NFT because your digital twin is no longer active. So you don't need a Carfax anymore because the whole history of your vehicle is in your avatar. It's a functional NFT whereby you don't have to be afraid to buy a used electric vehicle. You'll know the state of health of your battery. You know how many times somebody did supercharging or fast charging. It is a very different way in looking at how to democratize data. So because it's going to exist in the NFT form as well, are you potentially doing away with depreciation? That is an interesting viewpoint. I mean, cars, the physical cars, will depreciate simply because there's usage in the vehicle. The speed at which it depreciates will be very different now from car to car because you'll know exactly what happened. And that is something that's never been done before. There's a perfect history of usage and service of the vehicle available to the second or third owner. Is this a car you're going to be able to drive from coast to coast? Well, you can charge, yes. <laughs> like any other car, right? Like any other car. As and you're, you're how gonna, far you can drive all depends on your right foot. So you're going to be able to plug in where a force taken can, can yes. plug in or any, any other car except for a Tesla? No, Tesla's changing. Tesla in Europe is already changing to CCS standards, and in the U.S. they will change too. Well, that's a great network yes. that you'll have available. Fantastic network. Fantastic. Yes. So it would be good to own one in Europe, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And a hydrogen car at that. That is it. You, you still have a V8 in the mix, as I recall, though. That's our 1996 Alpha 2, which is the logical follow-up of the DMC-12 you see here at the show. And I'm really itching to buy to build that vehicle in a very small range because the car had so much positive reaction. But I don't know if we're going to do it yes or no. I'd love to do it. And where are the cars being built? Right now in Italy. Once we are in a view of where production is going to go, it will be North America. The best design in the world, whether it's fashion or automobile, comes from Italy. So this must have been a conscious choice on your part. It was, but it was also the correct historical choice because ITEL Design did the car in 1980s and has done now the same car or the, 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 the spiritual successor to that car in the 2000s. You're based in Texas. How did that happen? Texas has been exceedingly welcome in new businesses, car business especially. Our neighbors, Toyota, has been there for 20 years. Caterpillar has been there for decades. Navistar is moving their production there. Tesla's next door in Austin. So it was a logical place for us. There's a great local source of uh, talent and the automotive powerhouse of Mexico is around the corner. So it made a lot of sense. Our, our human connection, I think that is really, really important to us because nobody's doing that. Uh, the NFT launch instead of being on a dumb list. But yeah, we do have a story that is a little bit different than other car companies. Hopefully you expect this car company to be around for a very long time. Yes, not, not as, a, as a Ford or GM-sized company, but a much smaller company, catering towards specific segments that we feel we can add value to. Are we going to see you on the tracks anywhere in the world? If it was up to me, yes. <laughs> I'm more a rallycross person than a track person, but yes, I'd love to. Joost, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. Thank you so much for joining me at the Web3 Expo here in Las Vegas. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Ellis Martin Report with DeLorean Motor Company CEO, Yost DeVries. Get more information on fascinating opportunities at the Ellis Martin Report headquarters, ellis.gold. Join me now for a conversation with Blaine Monahan, the president and CEO of Pacific Ridge Exploration, trading as PEXZF in the U.S. on the OTC and on the TSX Venture Exchange as PEX. The company's goal is to become British Columbia's leading copper gold exploration company. Pacific Ridge's flagship project is the Clayhill Copper Gold Project, located in the Quainel Trough, approximately 50 kilometers southeast of Centera Gold's KMS Mine. In addition to Clayhill, the company's project portfolio includes the RDP Copper Gold Project, option to Antofagasta Minerals, the Anjo Copper Gold Project, and the Redton Copper Gold Project, all located in British Columbia. Pacific Ridge will continue to search for projects that offer discovery opportunity in their regions of expertise. Great news today in the market. You have some fantastic drill results from the RPD Project, and that is about 40 kilometers west of the company's flagship Clayul Copper Gold Project. Yeah, very exciting. These were the initial drill results from the RDP Copper Gold Project. This is a project that we optioned out to Antofagasta, one of the world's largest copper miners. They can earn a 75% interest by spending $10 million and delivering a preliminary economic assessment report over the next eight years. This was the first drill program since 2011, and these results were the best results ever returned from this project. As a matter of fact, they were some of the best results reported in BC this year. So a great start, and we're looking forward to additional results from RDP by the end of the month. This is fantastic, especially when you consider the grade of copper equivalent that you have. Yeah, it's really caught the market's attention. And you can see that in today's trading. I mean, we've traded at this point in time more than 3 million shares and we've appreciated about 20% in price. So there's a lot of people watching, a lot of people are excited. Yeah, very happy to see it. It just shows you that in a tough market, there is an appetite for good news, especially with copper, isn't there? Absolutely. We were very lucky that we raised the money that we did in the spring for a much bigger drill program at Clayul, and that Antifagasta was funding this initial drill program at RDP. And you're right, although the markets have been very difficult, good exploration or good discovery stories will still be rewarded. So tell us what's coming, Blaine. We have a very busy fall. So this was really the first piece of news in a long lineup of news. So this was the initial drill results from RDP. It was just one hole. We completed six holes there. So I'm expecting the initial drill results by the end of November, plus the results of a rock sampling program that also discovered several new zones. And in the next week or so, I'm expecting initial drill results from Clayul, which is our flagship. This is where we drilled almost 7,000 meters and 12 holes, and I'm expecting the first six drill holes within the next week or so. And I'm hopeful that we can return results very similar to what we did last year. And if we can do that, we could be very well set up. What do positive drill results like this and potentially upcoming drill results do for your strategy going forward for the next year or so with regard to exploration? I think the most important thing that results like this do, it leads to appreciation in share price. It leads to a heightened interest and awareness, which should make it easier for us to access the capital required to conduct further exploration and hopefully an even bigger exploration program. For example, at Clayul last year, we completed 1,500 meters in three holes, but the results from all three holes were quite significant, and it enabled us to go out there and raise a lot more money and launch a much bigger drill program this year 
and that's what I'm hoping will happen again next year. I'm hopeful that the next six holes will enable us to go back to the market, raise a lot more money so we can conduct an even bigger drill program next year at Clio. And the same at RDP. You have a very nice share structure right now. Yeah, we have about 85 million shares issued at the present time. We can account for a lot of those shares. Our biggest shareholders are Crescat, a U.S. fund. They own about 19.9%. Delphi, a German fund, owns about 14%. And then you have a number of other smaller funds and institutions own 6%. And management and former management own about 10%. So I can account for about half of those shares on one hand, which is a very good position to be in. Are you getting a sense that Copper on his own is making sort of a turnaround, possibly ahead of gold at the moment? Well, it certainly seems to be hanging in a lot tougher. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, you're seeing that increased demand. You're seeing uh, an increase in the forecasted demand. Inventory levels are low. So although things appear to be slowing on the macro level, supply and inventory levels are still quite constrained. So we're seeing that reflected in that copper is still holding in around $3.50 a pound. I mean, that's off from the all-time high of $5. With constrained supply, if we even begin to see the hint of an economic recovery or robust growth, globally or in China, I think copper and copper stocks could have a very powerful movement. Well, Blaine, thank you so much for the update. I look forward to those upcoming drill results from the Clay Yield Project, your flagship project. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks very much, Alice. Great being here. I've been speaking with Blaine Monahan, the president and CEO of Pacific Ridge Exploration, trading as PEXZF in the U.S. on the OTC and on the TSX Venture Exchange as PEX. Go to the company's website, PacificRidgeExploration.com. This is the Ellis Martin Report. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SYH and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. Sky Harbor is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada. The company has just secured an option to acquire an initial 51% and up to 100% of the Russell Lake Uranium Project from Rio Tinto in the Athabasca. This brings the total land package of Sky Harbor Resources in the Athabasca Base to over 450,000 hectares or 4,500 square kilometers, consisting of a total of 15 properties with some of the most high-grade uranium targets in the world. What a great project generation JV model that you have with all that acreage, all those hectares, all over the Athabasca, and four option agreements within the last 12 months. Just this morning, we announced what is our most significant option agreement. The terms, as you'll see in the news release, very significant cash and stock payments coming into the company over the next five years, totaling about $11.6 million in cash and stock, $4.6 million in cash, 7 million in stock, and then a significant amount of exploration expenditures requirements that Tisdale Clean Energy, that's the option partner, they're listed on the TSX Venture. They have to spend 10.5 million in exploration at the South Falcon East project. So this is a project that we've had in the portfolio for a number of years. It is host to the small Fraser Lake Zone B deposit, 7 million pounds at 0.03%. Right at surface, we've done a little bit of work on this project 
previously in 2015. We did a little bit of drilling there, just under a couple thousand meters of drilling and a little bit of work here and there over the last several years. But this project really does deserve a proper exploration and drill program in the next 12 months. And that's what will be delivered here by the new partner company coming in. And they will advance this project over the coming years. There's a lot of upside still at the project. It consists of about 12,500 hectares just outside of the eastern, southeastern margin of the basin. But in terms of the option agreement, again, significant transaction for Sky Harbor and its shareholders. It'll fortify our treasury, help keep dilution down going forward, help crystallize some of the value in the project. We benefit by retaining, ultimately, assuming they earn in up to the 75%. That's a key point. They can earn up to 75% with an initial 51% that they can earn over the next three years. So we do retain a minority interest in the project, whether it be 49% or 25%. We wanted to maintain some exposure through a minority interest in the property. We are keeping an NSR at the project as well. And much like our other option agreements and JV partnerships, we typically have, and in this case, we'll have a large equity position in the company going forward. So very excited to announce this. As you pointed out, this is our fourth option agreement in the last 12 months. So it's been a very, very busy year as we continue to execute on our prospect generator model. We did announce, I'm sure some of the audience saw this a couple weeks ago, an option agreement at our Wally and Usam projects. These are earlier stage properties that we acquired through staking just over a year ago. So very accretive transaction at those properties for us having announced an option agreement whereby Yellow Rocks Energy, an Australian company looking to list on the ASX, is planning to earn in at those projects $50,000 in cash initially, just over $2 million in share issuance over a three-year period, about $4.5 million in exploration expenditures for that three-year period. So they can earn up to an 80% interest at these projects. And again, all of these option agreements, these partnerships, these companies that are going to be advancing these projects, just take a step back and emphasize the importance and the significance of these partnerships. This allows us to remain focused at our core projects, our newly optioned Russell Lake project, which we've optioned from Rio Tinto. That transaction closed just several months ago. And of course, what has been the flagship project, Moore Lake. So these partner companies at the other secondary projects are going to be advancing these projects. We now have a total of seven partners, five option partners, the two that I just mentioned, as well as three previous option agreements that were signed with Madero at Yurchison Basin Uranium Corporate Man Lake, Valor at Hook Lake. And then we've got the two joint venture partners, one in Arano at the Preston Project, and of course, Azincourt at the East Preston Projects. The majority of these companies have been very active, have been either exploring or drilling their respective projects. We've seen a lot of meters drilled by these partner companies over the last 12 months. We're expecting a lot more come the new year. And we are now gearing up for what will be our largest collective drill campaign ever with Sky Harbor. So we are planning eight to 10,000 meters of drilling at our core projects of Russell and more over the next 12 months. And then we have the partner companies across 
half a dozen other projects that will be drilling and actively advancing these projects. So we're looking at a combined drill campaign of at least 25 to 30,000 meters over the next 12 months. This will be a very catalyst-rich story coming up across several projects. It's a very exciting time. Well, there's certainly more of an appetite for what I'm hearing with Sky Harbor and uranium than the rest of the sector right now. There's money out there. All of these projects, they seem to be, if not flagship projects, stellar projects for your partner companies, and you have your own flagship projects with Russell and Moore Lake. Just seems like this whole sector right now is loading up for something exciting in the future. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, it's been a pivotal 12, 18 months previous. In total now, we have agreements in place between these seven JV and option partners. We've signed agreements that total over $34 million in exploration funded by these various partner companies, just under $15 million in potential cash payments coming into Sky Harbor from these partner companies, and well over $20 million in stock being issued by these partner companies, assuming that they do complete their full earn-in. But that's a significant amount of exploration funded by partner companies and cash and stock coming into the company in a non-dilutive mean. Getting back to our core projects, and again, we have a hybrid model at Sky Harbor. We are focused on exploration and high-grade discovery at our core projects, in particular, Moore Lake and now Russell Lake. Russell, as you and your audience know, we optioned from Rio Tinto, a major deal that we announced in the summertime, something we had been working on for a while, a very, very strategic acquisition for Sky Harbor, given its location adjacent to our flagship Moore Lake project and wedged in between the MacArthur River Mine, the Key Lake Mill, and Denison's Wheeler River project to the west. Road accessible, it has power lines, it has a 40-person exploration camp, which will bring down our drilling and exploration costs at both Russell and Moore Lake going forward. We'll carry out an eight to 10,000 meter program at Russell and a little bit at Moore Lake as well. And we are looking to commence that drilling here before year end. So very exciting time with regards to the core projects where we're looking to continue to expand known high-grade zones of mineralization. It's important to note that both Russell and Moore have existing high-grade mineralization at the projects. We think there's a lot more to be found there, but we also believe there's additional high-grade discoveries and deposits that can be discovered at these projects. Russell Lake in particular, we've spent a lot of time having just acquired it, going through the historical data, the drilling. And we really think that there are a number of targets that haven't been fully tested. And we think that with the drilling that we're going to be carrying out here over the next 12 to 24 months, that we'll have success. Again, it's if you look at previous high-grade drill discoveries and deposits in the Athabasca Basin, there's significant value in wealth creation over a very short period of time from these high-grade discoveries. So we're incredibly excited to get to work here. This is, I think, going to be the most transformational year for the company between all the work we're doing at our Russell and Moore Lake projects, and then all the work that's being funded and carried out by the partner companies at the secondary project. We're well-funded, as I mentioned. We've got cash and stock coming in from partner companies, so we're in great shape there. We still maintain one of the largest mineral claims and project portfolios of any company in the Athabasca Basin. We're going to continue to entertain negotiations and discussions on optioning or JVing out some of the remaining 100% owned projects that we have in the portfolio. We're going to be very aggressively exploring and advancing our core project, the Athabasca. 
Alaska Basin, as you're well aware, is the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. If you look at just in the last six months, the landscape in the Athabasca Basin has changed quite a bit with the acquisition by UEC of UEX. UEX was really the only company in the Athabasca Basin that was in that, call it 100 to 300 million market cap range. UEC came in and purchased them in the summertime. And just recently, UEC made another significant move by acquiring the Rough Rider deposit from Rio Tinto. And so the landscape in the Athabasca Basin is changing. There's M&A, there's deals getting done, which is needless to say, a very, very exciting development for the various companies in the basin and certainly for Sky Harbor. We saw last week major transaction announced by Cameco acquiring a 49% stake in Westinghouse, which is a very strategic move to vertically integrate by Cameco. So we're really starting to see the deal flow and M&A pick up in the sector. There's a lot of tailwinds right now. We've had an incredible 12 months of news flow and developments as we see this nuclear sentiment continue to improve. And we see at the same time, so demand continuing to increase and the prospects for more demand continuing to improve. In the uranium market, we're seeing this continued supply side response and constrained supply side materialize into higher prices. And there's still a lot of runway here. I think we're still very, very early on in this bull market. I think it'll be a sustained bull market for years. But the world is a lot different today than it was a year ago. You look at what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, again, Russia is a major player in the nuclear industry and in the uranium mining market. Russia is about 10% of primary uranium mine supply. But if you look at nearby countries like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, you group those in with Russia, that's over 50% of primary mine supply, as well as Russia having a major, major stranglehold on enrichment and conversion capacity globally. And we've seen the advent of some new financial entities as, again, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, Yellow Cake, other entities that have come to the market that have sequestered material out of the market. So again, you just have this confluence of factors that I think will drive a much higher uranium price going forward. I think the big catalyst over the next 12 to 24 months will be a new contracting cycle. We've seen it commence. We've seen it start. We have seen contracting at least the initial contracting happening in this cycle. But I do think you're going to start to see that ramp up, especially as Western utilities are likely going to have to buy from Western suppliers. So you're going to see the utilities in the West having to rethink their contracting strategies and portfolios and having to source that material from Western suppliers. And that I believe will eventually create premiums and valuations for projects in Canada, the US, Australia, and other Western nations. And so it's a very exciting time. I've continued to add to my position on pullbacks, especially now with all the news flow that we've had over the last 12 months, and certainly with what we have coming up in the next 12 to 18 months. I think there is the strongest value proposition this company has ever offered investors. And I do see in the next 12 to 18 months, a much higher uranium price, which will obviously benefit all of the shareholders of Sky Harbor. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, the president and 
CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. Join Ellis now for a conversation with Ali Haji, the CEO of Ion Energy, trading in the U.S. on the OTC as IONGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as ION. Ion Energy is committed to exploring and developing Mongolia's lithium cellars, which includes the Babaul and Ergenaron project. ION's flagship 81,000 hectare Babaul lithium brine project represents the largest and first lithium brine exploration license awarded in Mongolia. ION Energy is well poised to be a key player in the clean energy revolution, positioned well to service the world's increased demand for lithium. Ali, welcome back to the program. It's great to speak with you again. I understand you took a site visit to Mongolia, and you're going to give us an update on the Ergok Naran exploration activity there with the lithium project. Yeah, I think for our listeners, a quick recap. We went out to Ergok Naran earlier this year with our team that included Don Haynes and Dr. Mark King, ex-Neolithium, ex-Lithium Americas, and current Albemarle individuals. And we were able to, to conduct an exploration program at Ergok Naran, which is a 29,000 hectare license in Dorngovi province. That program consisted of auger holes that went down to about 12 meters or basement or end of the water table plus two meters. But in addition to that, we had a TEM geophysics program that we conducted over the course of the summer. That program allowed us to see a massive or rather significant, I should say, volume of brine beneath surface at a cutoff of about six and a half ohm with a 22.7 billion cubic meter volume. So very exciting stuff with respect to scale. We had to then devise a program that would allow us to drill not only lithological holes using diamond core, but importantly using a six inch tricone bit going down to the same depth as the lithological holes to get a better sense of the brine aquifers beneath surface. So you're absolutely right. I was on site. I was there about three weeks ago. I was there to oversee the drilling program. We've now completed two holes from a diamond perspective, one hole from a water well perspective. We continue to press on with uh, an additional two holes from a diamond perspective and, of course, two and a half more holes from a water well perspective. I think it's very important for our listeners to go to your website, ionenergy.ca, and take a look at the latest news release to see photographs, actually, of the drilling and the drill location map and also an overview of the area. Whether you understand completely the science that's going on, you can see the scope of the project by just looking at that news release. You're absolutely right, and thank you for that, Ellis. I think what's important for our listeners to take away from this is we've drilled now two lithological holes, as I mentioned, using diamond core drilling, down to about 702 meters in total. We've been able to extrapolate areas that are very porous and permeable in nature. Importantly, we've found cumulative 80 meters worth of gravelite porous permeable material. This is very similar to what you can expect to find in Argentina, Chile, or Bolivia lithium triangle. Our permeability begins at about 185 meters below surface. vast majority of assets around the world today that are sort of uh, in the exploration phase may start a fair bit deeper. But what we're doing to better understand our assets and come up with an inferred resource before the end of the year is Don Haynes, my geologist, will be in Mongolia in the coming weeks here, the, the purpose of which would be to oversee that drilling program, bail out the holes using a pumping system, use a baler system to obtain brine samples at depth, understanding grades at various depths, along with conductivity, as well as grade. Once we do have that grade in place, the goal for the company would be use that average grade against the volume identified in previous press releases to come up with an inferred resource for our asset. 
So we're moving quite quickly. It is rather exciting, specifically because we've had high grade of up to 918 milligrams per meter on surface. But beyond that, of course, these uh, permeable zones that we're seeing beneath surface that are extremely encouraging that will require additional assaying before we can put out that inferred resource. Did I hear you correctly when you said you will have an inferred resource report by the end of this year? That's just two months from now? Absolutely. So that's the goal of the company. That's our target. We're moving in a pace that would be breakneck in terms of speed. We continue to execute on our promises. will allow us to advance toward that quite quickly as well. That's the goal for the company. We will continue to execute on that premise. And we look forward to sharing that update with the market as and when it's available. Compared to other junior lithium projects in the space, yours evidently is quite advanced. And you're in an area where there's a great deal of offtake opportunity close by. You couldn't have said it better, Ellis. We're located between 23 and 150 kilometers from the largest consumer on the planet. The vast majority of the junior miners out there are located either in the lithium triangle or elsewhere in the world, call it, you know, some of the deposits in the Americas as well, in North America. Those are junior in their current stage, but they do have the advantage of having two different advantages. One, the fact that they were able to advance their assets over the course of the pandemic using a skill set that existed in country. Mongolia did not have that. We just recently got access to the country. And the second being the fact that there is a proximity play advantage. So if somebody or your neighbor has found lithium, ultimately your valuation will be inflated as a result of perhaps you finding something that would be of commercial viability. In our case, we did two things to sort of alleviate that. One is we built a team of industry recognized experts well before we visited or acquired sites. Uh, They have now been to site as of April and we're accelerating our exploration program on the basis that we are funded. So we're not out here looking for capital. We're out here telling our story. We're out here telling the world that we are in fact drilling based on best practices used around the world for lithium exploration. And what we're seeing today is highly encouraging. So while we may be first movers in Mongolia and we may be 18 to 24 months behind various juniors around the world, given they had the opportunity to advance their assets through the pandemic, we're on the cusp now of uh, truly de-risking and understanding our assets at a level that would rival in our belief number of juniors that are currently exploring around the world. And you're trading at about 16 cents Canadian, which is about 12 U.S., I think there's a potentially a fantastic opportunity for upside in here. We can't make any promises. We can't really predict anything, but it looked very, very good, and you've got a very nice share structure. Review that for us, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we're trading at a massive discount. A lot of our peers are also trading at a massive discount, so that's not a value proposition that I would like to put out there. What I would like to talk about is the fact that we are, in fact, executing on our promises. Our proximity to market is unbeatable relative to a number of our peers around the world. We continue to execute on our promises with respect to exploration. And of course, we've had some analyst reports, including Zach's small cap research as of last week, putting us at a price of 42 cents. So, you know, a 3x premium relative to where we're trading today. I'm not going to say that's unheard of, but it is in fact very rare to see that you get a 3x premium to your current share price. We believe that as we continue to execute and we continue to follow through on our promises to the market, we will start to see that re-rate here in due course. Of course, the economy that we are in is one of a lot of uncertainty. But as far as the assets that we control and the team that we've established, we're very confident that we will start to deliver on something that may puts the lithium supply chain on its head with respect to where we are operating today.
And Ali, one more time, how many shares? 60.5 million shares today, a very small sort of uh, cap table, 25% in the hands of management and insiders. We have a number of shares in the hands of institutions that have come in on either a placement historically or have acquired on market. For our listeners and our viewers, the last bought deal was done at 50 cents a unit. We're currently trading at 12, as Ellis highlighted. And so we're trading at a massive discount to that, and nobody in that strategic or institutional space has exited. I continue to have conversations with them, and they're holding on because they see value in what we're doing. I think it's a matter of time until we start to see that inflection point whereby we have shown that there is an inferred resource that is qualifies from a 43-101 perspective to show ultimate value for us. Ellis has been speaking with Ali Haji, CEO of Ion Energy, trading in the U.S. on the OTC as IONGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as ION. Learn more. Head to the company's website, ionenergy.ca. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com.